Well, happy Easter, everybody. My name is Scott Luck, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're delighted to have you uh, on this of greatest days in human history, uh, Resurrection Sunday. So if you have a Bible, turn in the Scriptures to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have the passage on the screens behind me. Now, one of my favorite characters from literature and even from movies is the character uh, Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes is the English detective who, who really has a gift for paying attention to details. So he has the ability to go in and assess a crime scene and, and really just observe the smallest of details uh, that uh, most people miss or most people consider insignificant, but end up being absolutely crucial to understanding what happened. And so he really believed that the, the smallest, most insignificant detail could be the key to solving the most difficult of cases. And so what we learn from, you know, Sherlock Holmes is that small things make a big difference. And I want you to keep that in mind as we consider really today uh, the mysterious case of a missing body. And obviously I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why we are here celebrating today. It's the, the greatest day in the history of the world. And the reason why Easter is really such a big deal is because the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified. And it's not just the Bible. It's secular historians also tell us that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Roman authorities. Now, crucifixion is the most brutal form of the death penalty ever invented. The entire purpose of crucifixion is to prolong the most intense pain and suffering that a human being could ever endure. And so Jesus, on that beginning on Thursday evening late and into the wee hours of the morning on that first Good Friday, he, he endured six different trials. Six different trials, basically sham trials, where he was accused falsely and uh, framed, but from there he was beaten, he was flogged, he was spat upon, he was humiliated, he was crucified with nails on a Roman cross, and the Bible tells us that he died that Good Friday afternoon. The Bible also tells us that they put his body in a sealed tomb for three days. The Bible also tells us that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. His resurrection was a bodily resurrection. His resurrection was a physical resurrection. It's not just some, you know, kind of spiritual resurrection where we just kind of hope Jesus was raised. We just kind of believe he was raised in our hearts. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't a hallucination where they just kind of imagined seeing something that they didn't really see. It wasn't, it wasn't that at all. And it certainly wasn't a mistake. You know, mistakes can only be so big. That would be a big mistake to think that somebody has actually risen from the dead when he really hasn't. What Jesus did on that first Easter Sunday, church, is he walked out of the tomb. He got up and he walked out. And that is why we are celebrating today. Now, I had the privilege with, with uh, 46 other people from our church to visit the Holy Land just a couple of weeks ago. And um, what's interesting about the Holy Land, there are two places in the city of Jerusalem that Bible scholars, archeologists, and historians believe are the sites of 
you know, the possible sites, one of those two sites, are the places where Jesus was crucified and uh, where he, he died and was buried and then where he rose. The first site is what is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's about an 1,800-year-old church, and uh, it surrounds what they believe is the tomb of Jesus. And uh, you can see kind of a picture inside of that tomb inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so we got to see that church uh, just a few weeks ago. But we also got to see the other site, and the other site is called the Garden Tomb. And this is on the outskirts of the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, many Bible scholars, archaeologists believe that this is the site uh, because it is, is closer to uh, the, the place of where Joseph of Arimathea owned some property. And so it makes total sense that this would be the site. Now, the thing that I can tell you, church, regardless of which site you think that it is, uh, we got to visit both sites, and let me tell you, Jesus' body is not in his tomb. We were there, we saw it. There's nothing in this tomb. And uh, he has been raised from the dead, and that is why we're here celebrating. And so what I want to really do this morning is I want to share with all of you a piece of evidence uh, that I believe, along with a collage of other numerous signs, really points to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is just consider some implications of that reality and that truth today. So what I want to do is I want to read to you from John's gospel, his eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to read from John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand just for the reading of God's word today. So this is what John records. He says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. But then Simon Peter came and followed him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must first, uh, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So Jesus was crucified on that Friday afternoon and he died and uh, his, some of his friends met at the crucifixion site and they they took his body and they began making burial preparations uh, for, for Jesus. And so they began on that Friday afternoon. And because the Jewish Sabbath begins Friday evening at sundown, their burial preparations had to be interrupted so that they could observe the Sabbath. And so the plan was a couple of the ladies would return back to Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning and then they would finish making those burial preparations. And so on early Sunday morning, the women returned to the tomb to finish what they had started on Friday. And when they arrived, they noticed something was wrong. 
They noticed that the Roman guards were no longer posted at the tomb. They noticed the stone had been rolled away. They looked inside and there was, there was uh, no one inside the tomb. There was no body inside the tomb. Their logical conclusion, which would have been our conclusion if we had been there on that first day, is that somebody had stolen his body. Somebody had taken it and uh, they didn't know what had happened to it. So having reached this conclusion, they go back to the place where the disciples and the followers of Jesus met regularly, and they began to share the news. His body is not in his tomb. We don't know what they've done with him. And uh, so immediately, Simon Peter and John, the disciple that Jesus loved, it's kind of interesting. Wouldn't you, be, wouldn't you like to be Simon Peter next to John, the, the one that, you know, the disciple that Jesus really liked? There's Simon Peter and the disciple that Jesus really liked. Uh, that would be kind of an interesting descriptor. But, but those two guys run back to the tomb and they begin observing kind of this crime scene. And uh, so they look around and they start noticing some details. They, they notice the Roman guards are not there, even though they had been posted and ordered to be there. Uh, they noticed the stone had been rolled away. Uh, they look inside the tomb and the grave clothes are kind of laying there uh, on the ground, just kind of tossed aside. And then the other thing that they notice is a head cloth, uh, a cloth separate from the grave clothes, uh, was neatly folded and then placed to the side. So they notice that small, seemingly insignificant detail. And uh, I think if Sherlock Holmes had been investigating this crime scene, I think he would have locked right on to that folded head cloth just put over to the side. I think it's a clue. I think it gives us some insight into the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what I want to just kind of share with you briefly uh, this morning, that, um, that this folded cloth just placed to the side teaches us a few things about the resurrection. And I want to share with you three of them this morning. The first one is this. The folded cloth teaches that Jesus' resurrection was premeditated. It was premeditated. And what I mean by that is it wasn't an accident. His resurrection wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't just a lucky shot. It was, a, it was part of the premeditated plan of God that Jesus would die and be raised from the dead. Now, obviously, throughout church history, there have been skeptics that have questioned the resurrection. And uh, some people have kind of put forth that somebody had to have broken in stolen his body. This is kind of part of the skepticism. And uh, it could have been the disciples that they break in, you know, in the dead of night, steal his body, and then they start proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Sounds plausible, right? Or other people suggest that maybe the Romans did it, or, you know, maybe the Jewish authorities broke in and stole the body because they were anticipating that the disciples of Jesus would you know, kind of proclaim the resurrection. And so what the, the, the Roman authorities or maybe even the Jewish authorities wanted to do is be able to debunk those claims by saying, he, he, he's not risen from the dead. We have his body right here. Here it is. Now, when you kind of think about, you know, that, you know, that, uh, that thought that somebody's stolen Jesus' body, it really doesn't make sense when you, when you think about it just realistically. First and foremost, if the disciples had this idea that they were going to steal the body of Jesus and then proclaim his resurrection, they're going to have to get through two Roman guards who are posted at the tomb of Jesus. And if you go with the maximum count of disciples in on this plot, let's say 11, and that these guys show up, they're going to have to, they're going to, have to engage these Roman soldiers and overcome them. And so the Roman soldiers are the most heavily armed, well-trained soldiers in the world at that time. 
And if you're betting man, if you're going to take, you know, either, you know, the 11 disciples on these two Romans, um, you, you better kind of think that through clearly because you know who I'm betting on? I'm going to bet on the Roman soldiers every single time. Do you know why? Because the disciples are not trained. They're not trained in warfare. They're not trained in battle. And they're probably not heavily armed. The Roman soldiers are. And I think the Roman soldiers would have carved them up in minutes. And it wouldn't have even have been pretty. But even if you had gotten past the Roman guards, you still have the issue of trying to roll away the stone. Stone is huge and heavy. I think that would have been an issue. But let's think about this a little bit further. Let me ask you a question. What would motivate the disciples to concoct this story that Jesus had been raised from the dead? What would motivate them to break in and steal the body in the first place? I mean, what is it that they have to gain from this? Now, I love what the Christian apologist Frank Turek says about this. He, he, he says, you know, when, when, when politicians lie or, you know, when celebrities or sports figures lie about something going on in their life, there's three reasons why they would lie. There's three common motivations that cause people to lie in public about something uh, that, uh, you know, that they've done or they've made up that's done. And those three reasons are money, sex, and power. That's why you would lie, to gain one of those. And what we see is from the disciples, they gain none of that. Do you know what the disciples gained from preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They gained their death. They died for the message that they preached. So really, when people put forth that they stole the body and uh, preached the resurrection, they're basically preaching, they're basically putting out there that these disciples died for a lie. Now, does that even make sense? It doesn't. And if you think about the Jews or the Romans, you know, an inside job that was their plan, maybe they, you know, they broke in and stole the body themselves, you know, you know that, that, that's, that's, I guess, plausible. But what's interesting about that is as the disciples began preaching the resurrection of Jesus, they would have gladly put forth the body of Jesus to, to debunk those claims. But we have no record of that. There's complete silence about that. And you're talking about the, Jew, the Jews and the Romans who are very good about writing down histories. They're very good about details and chronicling those details. But we have nothing about that. What we see from, from the, really in the book of Acts, the authorities were constantly trying to squelch this, this movement. They were trying to, to uh, imprison the apostles to keep them from preaching. And uh, the more they tried, the more the message spread. But there's still one more reason why I think it's completely implausible that somebody would break in and steal the body of Jesus. And I think it has to do with this folded cloth. I mean, think about it, church. If you're a thief breaking in a tomb to steal the body of someone, are you really going to take the time to tidy up the laundry? To throw it to the side to make everything, you know, look kind of neat and clean? No, you know what you're going to do? You're going to do a smash and grab. You're going to break into the tomb. You're going to grab it. You're going to get out of there as quickly as you possibly can. That's what you're going to do. And that's what we see in this story. It's not a chaotic break-in. What we see here is a careful, deliberate, premeditated plan. And that's what we see. And what's fascinating about this premeditated plan is you see it all the way through human history. You see God foreshadowing this plan 
that he would send his son and his son would live and his son would die and his son would rise. You see it all the way throughout human history. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. That it's a part of this mysterious plan that God, that God has for us. And you see it especially throughout the Old Testament as it points to on so many occasions. You know, the, the, the coming of the Messiah and, and uh, the death of that Messiah and the resurrection. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Genesis 3 is an interesting chapter. There's so much there. And if you remember, Genesis 3 is the story of Adam and Eve and they fall into sin. And then there, there are these consequences of their disobedience and their sin. And what God does is he just lists those consequences out. And they're kind of heavy and they're kind of hard. But right in the middle of them, in verse 15, he inserts some really good news. And, and you see this in Genesis 3.15. What, what God does is he, he's telling us uh, about his son doing battle with the serpent Satan. That, that, he's, he, that, that God is going to send his son. He's going to put enmity between the serpent, the deceiver, Satan, and, uh, and Eve. And notice, notice how he words it. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. What he's talking about there, he's predicting a future battle, a battle royale between the serpent and the son of God. And what the Son of God is going to do is bruise the head of the serpent, going to crush him. And what the serpent is going to do is scratch the heel of the Son. And that's, that's the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. And you see this foreshadowing that the Messiah would sustain a wound but not be held back from it, be resurrected from it. You see this in Psalm 16.10. David writes about this. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, Sheol is the Hebrew word for dead. You're not, he, he, it's a statement of faith. He, he's confident. He has an assurance. God, you're not going to abandon me when I step into, when I step through death. You're not going to abandon me. And then he tags it with this. Or let your holy one, who's this holy one? The Messiah, right? You're not going to let your holy one see decay or corruption. And what he's referring to is, he's, he's referring to the grave. You're not going to abandon my soul, and you're not going to let your Holy One be decayed by death. But if you still don't believe me, just read the Gospels. You see it over and over and over again. Jesus laying his cards down in front of the disciples, telling them plainly, the Son of Man will die, the Son of Man will be raised on the third day. Let me give you an example of this, Mark 9, 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, what's Jesus doing? He's telling you the plan. He's telling us the plan. He's telling the disciples the plan. And they were so blinded by their preconceived notions that they, it was hard for them to get it. Like, it, it just took a while for this to register. And, uh, but, but Jesus is clearly laying out the premeditated plan of God. So what we have here is not some chaotic crime scene where things are just out of control and helter-skelter. What we have, Jesus tidying up the laundry here before walking out of that tomb is, is really his premeditated plan. That's what this resurrection 
really is all about. By the way, do you know that God has a plan for your life? I mean, not only was Jesus' death and resurrection part of his premeditated plan, but God has a plan for your life. Do you know that God knew before the foundation of the world that you would be here today? You know what the heart of God is? Is to simply reveal his love to you. He wants to walk with you. He wants you to know him, to love him, and to be in a relationship with him. That's what all this is about. He has a plan for you. Jeremiah 29, 11 says it. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We live in a hopeless and futureless world, you know, from human perspective. But God says, I, I plan to give you hope and a future. And you know what that hope and future is? A relationship with Jesus. That's what it is. And that is really, really good news he has a plan for you. So this folded cloth tells us that Jesus' resurrection was a, was a premeditated plan of God. But the folded cloth also tells us that Jesus' resurrection was powerful. It was powerful. I was reading about this uh, robbery that happened in Pennsylvania. This is 2017. And uh, it was interesting. This man robbed the Dunkin' Donuts uh, in, his, in his town. And uh, he didn't rob it for the donuts. He robbed it for the money. I would have done it for the donuts because I love donuts. Uh, but that's just me. So, uh, but anyway, what's funny about this robbery, and I actually watched the video of this. This is so interesting. So, so this guy, this robber, you know, he's, he's got a hoodie on. He's got something over his face. And uh, he's got these dark clothes on. And it's really funny because he's, he's casing out the Dunkin' Donuts. All right. So he's, he, he's, he's looking at this. And he's out in front of it. And he knows the security cameras are beamed right on him. And um, so he's out there in full view of the security cameras. And you know what he starts doing right before the robbery? He starts doing calisthenics. Like he starts, you know, he starts kind of stretching his legs, you know, and just, just kind of doing this number and doing some air squats, you know, just getting loosened up. And you're like, what in the world is this guy doing? I mean, this is the strangest, most bizarre robbery you could ever imagine. And uh, you, you know what my theory is on what he was doing? I think he knows full well those cameras are on him. He knows exactly what he is going to do. He's going to go in and rob this Dunkin' Donuts. And he knows the authorities are going to pull that video footage and see what they can learn about the identity of who he is so that they can, they can catch him. And you know what I think he's doing? You, th you know what I think he's saying as he gets ready to go in that Dunkin' Donuts and hold it up? He's saying, you can't touch this. That's what he's saying. You, you can't touch this. Now, church, think with me for a minute, okay? Imagine Jesus. He is wrapped head to toe in grave clothes. They have poured spices and, you know, myrrh all over him as protocol for burial, what they would do back then. They place him in the tomb on Friday. He's in the tomb Friday. He's in the tomb Saturday. He is in the sealed tomb on Sunday and then what happens on Sunday morning think about what happens here's here's what I think happened I think Jesus stood up and he pulled the head cloth off of his head and I think what he did is he went like this and then I think he folded it and I think he tossed it aside 
And you know what I think he did after that? You know what I think he said after that? I can't prove this, but this is my theory. I think he walked out of that tomb and he said, death, you can't touch this. That's what I think he said. You see, Jesus' resurrection was powerful. And what it proves is this, that the grave could not hold him. The grave clothes could not hold him. The grave stone could not hold him, right? The Roman guards could not hold him. And most of all, death could not hold him. That's how powerful the resurrection is. That's why this day is not about the Easter bunny. It's about Jesus' resurrection. It's an absolute game changer for you and for me. His resurrection is so powerful. He silenced the boast of sin in the grave. That's what he did. He silenced it. It used to boast over us because it had control over us. And it ruled us and dominated us, but no more. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. He asks the question, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so think about this. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power available to me and to you and to the entire world. That is unbelievable. Now, as I was just kind of thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, the, the truth is this, and I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, um, but it is, but it is liter- literally the truth. If, if Jesus doesn't return anytime soon, church, we're all going to die. We are all speeding towards our death. That's just the truth. And we live in a culture that wants to avoid thinking about this altogether. We don't want to consider it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. In fact, we take all kinds of steps to prevent it from happening because we have this hope that, well, maybe it won't happen to me. And uh, so what we do is we diet, we exercise, and we take supplements, and we go to the doctor, and, you know, we, we, we do all this stuff to try to fight off death. In fact... When we talk about death, when we tell someone horrible news that somebody has, has died, do, do you know what we say? We don't even say she died or he died. You know what we say? He passed away. She passed away. What we're trying to do is soften it, right? We're trying to blunt the blow of it, right? Because it's so painful and heavy and hard and we want to just avoid it and kind of recategorize it all together. But here's the thing, church. The reason why we celebrate Easter is because Easter means Jesus has overcome death. The resurrection means the death of death, that it no longer has power over us. It is a defeated foe. And Jesus' entire ministry points to this. This is why you see Jesus raising a widow's son from the dead. This is why you see Jesus raising the the daughter of a centurion. This is why Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He shows up in Bethany. He knows this family. He is close to this family. He is good friends with Lazarus. And he shows up and he's basically saying, this is going to be a piece of cake. And and so Lazarus' sister say, "Uh, I wouldn't go up there. He's been dead four days. There's going to be an odor. And you remember what Jesus said in response to that? 
he said this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Translation, I have resurrection power. That's how you translate that. And death is a defeated foe. So practically, on the earth, on the ground, what this means for you and for me is we no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to live in fear of it. Why? Because we have an assurance of our place in heaven because of Jesus' death and because of his resurrection. I no longer have to live with fear and uncertainty about what is inevitably coming for all of us. And that is really, really good news. Now, let me just say another word to some of you here today. You know, there, there's some of you that are, that are here today and you're Christians, you, you know, you know the Lord, you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, but, but you've drifted in your relationship with God. You've drifted out of church, you've drifted in your relationship with God, and you're just struggling. You're struggling in your walk with God. And you just have kind of shoved God to the backside. And you're pinned down by circumstances or you're discouraged, you know, because of some adversity in your life. Or maybe you're just held down by some life-dominating sin. And here's the thing I want to tell you, church. It's time to come home. It's time to, for you to come home. You know why? Because, because the power of the resurrection is not just, you know, power over death at some point in the future. The power of the resurrection is power over sin and circumstances in the present. And what that means is this, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a new center in your heart. You have the power of the living God living inside of you by grace through faith. And what that means is it means not just victory over death, but it means victory over sin and circumstances right now. That you no longer have to, have to live pinned down, discouraged, depressed, and just compromised in your walk with God. Let me, let me show it to you from Romans 8 to just a tremendous chapter, probably the greatest chapter in all the Bible, Romans 8. But let me show you one verse. Uh, Paul says it like this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin death you've been set free you've been set free so it's time for you to come home because that freedom's inside of you and you're like well Scott what do I do well it's kind of like when you drive home today you know you drive home and your hands on the steering wheel and uh, what's your hand always doing on that steering wheel it's always moving isn't it because you're always course correcting as you're driving down the road. If you hold the steering wheel straight and you don't let it move, guess what's going to happen? Yeah, it's going to go off into the ditch because your car is probably out of alignment, right? So, so there's that. But what are you doing? You're course correcting. You're constantly adjusting. Do you know what? When you fall down with God's grace and God's love, what do you do? You get back up. You get back up. Why wallow in it? Why stay in it? You have resurrection power within you, church. It's time to come home. Jesus doesn't condemn you. Let's go. Let's get it right. And how do you do that? You confess, God, I've blown it. I've messed up. I need your grace. 
That is the prayer He will answer every time. What are you waiting on? And so that's the power of Jesus. Not just power over death, but power over sin right now. And the folded cloth reminds us of that. All right, but there's one more thing that the folded cloth teaches us about the resurrection, and that is this, that the resurrection holds a promise, a promise for the future. It holds a promise. Now, don't call me Miss Manners, because I am the farthest from that, Um, but let me just kind of share this with you. If you're having a meal at a very nice restaurant, and you're done with that meal, okay, and you've got your napkin on your, on your lap, and you're finished, you're finished eating, what do you do when you're finished eating that nice meal? Well, what, what we normally do is we take our napkin, and we just kind of wad it up, and we just throw it up on the table just like that, and uh, it sits next to our plate, and that's a signal to your dinner party and to the servers around you that you're finished, you're done eating, you're feeling really good, you know? And uh, that's that's signal. But but what do you do? What's the appropriate protocol, if you will, if you have to get up in the middle of your meal, but you're not done yet? You're coming back. Well, according to Miss Manners, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to fold your napkin and put it to the side of your plate, either the side of your plate or on your seat, and then that lets everybody know you're not done yet you're coming back. Isn't that amazing? You could come to church and say, you know what, I learned something today. That is amazing. I really did learn that. Uh, but that's really what you're supposed to do. And, uh, and so now when you think about our story today, you think about the disciples, they, they walked into that empty tomb, Peter and John do. They, they start looking at the, the crime scene. They start kind of evaluating the details. And then church, I think what happens is it starts to click. It starts to come back to them. The puzzle pieces are coming together and they start to realize he told us he was going to die. He told us he was going to rise. And then it starts to click even further. He just told us Thursday night he's coming back. Let me show it to you from John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. John records this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen to this. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise. He's coming back. Now church, I don't know if Jesus was using that folded headcloth you know, and put it to the side as some kind of signal. I do know it's a great sermon illustration. I do know that. Uh, but I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus was signaling. Maybe, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I, I, don't, I don't know that. But I do know this. He flat out told them Thursday night, I'm coming back. I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm coming back, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to that place so that where I am, you may be as well and see when you think about it Jesus made a promise that he was going to die and he did and Jesus made a promise that he was going to rise and he did and then he makes this promise that he's going to come back and he hasn't come back yet but so far he's two out of three and uh, 
my money is on what his word says. He's coming back. He is coming back for you and for me. Now, what is he doing in the meantime? Like, what's he doing right now? Well, what Jesus tells us from, from John chapter 14 is he's actually preparing a place for us right now. That's what he's doing. He's busy preparing. In between the resurrection and right now, he is preparing a place called heaven for us. Can I tease you with this just a little bit? You, you know what heaven is? Heaven's a perfect place. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more, no more destruction, no more disease, no more death. You know what we're going to do in heaven? We're going to play. We're going to work. We're going to worship. We're going to go to concerts. We're going to go to musicals and plays. We're going to go to sporting events. We might even see the Colts win the Super Bowl. I don't know. I mean... <laughs> That would be amazing. But we're going to laugh. We're going to live. We're going to travel. We're going to love. It's a perfect place. And he's preparing that place for us today. And you know what's amazing about the gospel? Is it's an open invitation for all of you to join him. That's where his heart is. For you to join him there. That's, why, that's what all this is about. He's getting that ready. He's getting it ready for the paradise that we long for and we hope for. And there's an open invitation. And really what the folded cloth is, is it's a reminder of that promise. That that's where this world is going. We get so distraught over where we, what we see going on in our world today. Church, it's, it's a surprise to us in so many ways. It is not a surprise to God. He knows this is a broken, sin-cursed world, and he has made plans to fix it, and he is going to do it, and he invites you to be a part of it. Now, let me show you verse 8, because I love how real and raw this is. Uh, this is John, uh, then the other disciple. Uh, we are told the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. I like that, because it's just so straightforward. Like it just clicks for John. He just, for the first time, he's getting it. I mean, it's taken long enough, right? It's taken three years for him to kind of figure this out. But he looks at the empty tomb. He looks at the Roman guards are gone. He looks at the, the grave clothes and the folded cloth. And, he's, and he realizes this is no ordinary man. This is no, you know, no mere good teacher. This is no religious prophet. This is the son of God. Because only the Son of God can do this. And church, what I can tell you is this. Every other religious leader in the history of the world is still six feet under in the grave. But Jesus is not there. He's, he has been raised. And so John makes this connection. He connects all of the dots that Jesus lived and he died and he rose. And what it tells us is he believed. And it changed his life. Here's the question. Have you believed? Have you connected the dots? Have you seen God's plan from the very beginning and put your faith and trust in that plan? And the Bible says that by grace through faith, man, you can be saved and you can know that you're saved. See, the Bible tells us this. There's two ways to get to heaven. There's plan A. We call that the performance plan. 
okay? And to do it by the performance plan, you got to perform. You got to measure up. You've got to be perfect in thought, word, and deed. You got to be perfect on your best days. You got to be perfect on your worst days. It's the only way you can get into heaven. It's the performance plan. Now, the problem with the performance plan is none of us are perfect. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. We've all done that. Let's just admit it and own it. We realize we, have, we are not perfect. We've not fallen through. And so the performance plan really isn't available to us. Now, some people kind of think it is because they think, oh, you know, I'm a good person. I'm 51% good. You know, I'm a good hardworking Hoosier, for crying out loud. God's got to let me into heaven. I'm a good person. But see, there's a flaw in that thinking. And the flaw is this. We assume that Jesus requires goodness to get into heaven. And we assume that we're so good, he owes us to go into his heaven. But if, but if we're just 51% good, that means we're not perfect. And if we're just 51% good and he lets us into heaven, guess what happens to heaven? It's no longer a perfect place. Because we're imperfect. We're there. So you see, you see the kind of the reasoning there that, that, uh, that, that's, that's really badly mistaken. But see, there's another plan. There's another way to get into heaven. And that is plan B. And this happens when you put your trust in Jesus Christ who says, I'm the way truth and life and no one goes to the father except through me and so this is the performance plan but it's not our performance it's the performance of Jesus Christ he lived the life we should have lived and then he died the death we should have died and he rose from the dead as the forerunner of those who would be raised after him who would believe in him. And so that's how you get into heaven. Not by putting your faith in your own goodness, but putting your faith in the goodness of Jesus Christ. And what happens is a transaction happens. Our sin goes to Jesus and his goodness comes to us. And then God views us as if we've never sinned because he views us through the lens of his one and only son, Jesus, who died and who rose from the dead. And if you would take a step of faith to embrace his goodness and trust in his goodness, the Bible says you will be saved. You will know God and walk with him. You're like, well, how do I do that? Well, it's simple. It's as simple as A, B, and C. You know, I like to keep things simple and, and uh, couldn't be any more simple than A, B, and C. A just stands for admit that you need a Savior. You look at your life, I've fallen short, I've messed up, not going to be good enough. I, I, can't, I, I can't do enough good works to bridge the gap. So I admit it, I've blown it, I've messed up. Secondly, you believe that Jesus died for you, that when he went to the cross, he went with you in mind. He died for you in your place. And then C stands for you commit your life to him. You start following after him. Because like if you really believe something, it's going to change the way you live. It's not about saying a prayer or just believing in something in your head and then it doesn't affect your life. That's not real faith. 
real faith is I'm different now. I'm going to follow after Jesus with his help and his grace in my life. That's why Easter's so big, so amazing. Um, Jesus didn't die and rise to, you know, to make bad people good. He died and rose to make dead people alive. And that's what he wants to do is put his resurrection power right at the center of your heart. Let's pray together. As we just uh, bow our heads and our hearts, I want to give you an invitation today to respond to the greatest news in the world. And that is the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And if you will want to receive him as your Lord and Savior, I want to just lead you in a prayer. And this prayer is nothing magical about, about me praying. What's powerful is the grace that comes with the prayer. And so I just want to lead you in this prayer and just pray silently to your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I, I'm in need of your grace. And I believe you died on the cross for my sins. You took my place. It should have been me on the cross. And I thank you for your love and your forgiveness. And now I, I just commit my life to you. And I pray that you would put your spirit in me so that I can follow you the best I know how. And so God, I pray that you would give me the gift of eternal life, that you would take away fear, that you would just take away shame and guilt, that you would just set me free, that I could walk in the newness of life, in resurrection life. And so God, would you, would you save me now? And so I just thank you, God, for every person who's prayed that prayer and the sound of my voice. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who's working. And I pray that, God, you would just give grace and peace and, and really just confirmation of your gospel, your blood applied, and your power poured out into them. Would you confirm that? We're no longer orphans. We're no longer outsiders but now we're children of God we're insiders not because we're good but because Jesus is good and so God we thank you for all of this and we pray it in Jesus name and all of God's people said amen and amen